Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Environmental lawyers have begun filing lawsuits against Monsanto for cancer deaths related to their product Roundup. What these lawsuits are uncovering shows an effort both on the part of Monsanto and the U.S. government to minimize the message about the dangers of Roundup in relation to human cancer. The story begins as early as the 1980s when laboratory tests on glyphosate began to show cellular changes in laboratory animals that should have been considered early signs of cancer. In fact, in 1985, the EPA, during a time when it was actually effective, during a time when it actually worked on behalf of a safe environment, determined that glyphosate, the primary ingredient of Roundup, needed to be classified as a Class C carcinogen, which meant that it clearly was suggestive of a relationship to cancer. But then miraculously, six years later, the EPA suddenly changes that classification to something just the opposite, where they claim that, no, we were wrong, and overnight, glyphosate, according to the EPA in Monsanto, the public now has no worries, according to those folks. Nothing to worry about here, move on. All the laboratory testing from the early 80s showed that, that that was used to classify glyphosate as a cancer agent, and that suddenly became unavailable to the public. All that information became unavailable with Monsanto arguing that all that early testing results fall under what they call their protective trade secrets protection that it can't be shared with the general public. It can't be shared with scientists or the government. The next twist takes place when the World Health Organization issues a statement in 2015 maintaining that Monsanto Roundup herbicide, in their words, is probably a human carcinogen. That's what they said. As you might imagine, Monsanto called in its army of paid scientists, lobbyists, politicians that need contributions that'll sell their soul for anything, and government agencies that were more concerned with mega profits than human health. With government, corporate-controlled media, and even the White House pulling every string to protect Monsanto, and at that point it appears that the only place this story can fully be told is in courtrooms. That's the only way that this story will ever be told for a jury to hear the story and a jury to make a decision about how bad the conduct is, both as to Monsanto and the U.S. government in this deadly cover-up that's cost thousands of lives throughout this country and worldwide. That major court victory for a terminally ill school groundskeeper who took on corporate giant Monsanto. He claims their weed killer roundup made him sick. A San Francisco jury awarding him $289 million. What this may mean for thousands of similar lawsuits. Here's ABC's Adrian Banker. The first cancer patient to take Monsanto, one of the world's largest pesticide companies, to court wins his case to the tune of $289 million. I'm glad to be here to be able to help with a cause that's way bigger than me. Dwayne Johnson is dying of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He says was diagnosed after working just two and a half years as a school groundskeeper, applying the weed killer Roundup up to 30 times a year. In a San Francisco court, the jury finds Monsanto, the makers of Roundup, did not provide sufficient warnings about the potential risk, and the product was a substantial factor in his illness. Monsanto plans to appeal, saying in a statement, we are sympathetic to Mr. Johnson and his family, but they defend the herbicide's claim, saying it has a 40-year history of safe use and continues to be a vital, effective, and safe tool for farmers and others. 
The company points to hundreds of studies that it says find the product's main ingredient does not cause cancer. The EPA has not restricted its use. If the verdict stands, it could set precedent for thousands of cases just like these. The lawyers filing in state courts to move more quickly because of the poor health of some of their plaintiffs. And with his attorneys say that they didn't know if Johnson would live to see his day in court. Incredibly emotional for him and his family. Adrian, thank you. Today, our guest is Carrie Gillum, who is an investigative journalist. She's the author of the book, Whitewash, the story of weed killer cancer and the corruption of science. And she's also a research director at U.S. Right to Know. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to talk um, a little bit about the piece you just had in The Guardian on uh, Monsanto. And they lost a lawsuit, uh, basically... A gentleman sued them for years of exposure to Roundup and um, has cancer. He came to the conclusion that Monsanto had been covering up and um, evidence, et cetera. So walk us through the piece a little bit and some of the things that you were able to expose. Yeah, I mean, this is um, something that's been building really ever since 2015. Um, well, before that, I suppose, but it came to global attention in 2015 when this inter- International Agency for Research on Cancer uh, found this chemical glyphosate, which is the key ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup herbicide, when they found it to be a probable human carcinogen. And they did that by looking at, you know, years and years of, of evidence of studies of research that have been done around the world. So Lee Johnson is the first man, the first plaintiff, really, to, to take Monsanto to trial. Um, over this claim that its herbicide causes cancer. And in the trial, um, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys really were able to lay out not only the evidence that that there is a cancer connection, but, you know, more damning that Monsanto internally in its own communications has known about these risks for many, many, many years and has worked worked really, really hard to hide the risk and to suppress evidence of harm. And so that's what really came out to the jurors, and that's why they awarded $289 million in damages. Which I think is actually, you know, people might listen to that reward and think that it's high, but when compared to the sales and the widespread use of Roundup, it's really not making a dent in their profits. So if it's if it's this whole carrot stick mentality, when it's really not that much of a stick, it, this this entire cover-up reminds me of big tobacco in many ways because the scientists that were involved in covering up the cancer related to tobacco were sort of engaging some of the similar uh, practices. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's very much the playbook that we saw revealed in the tobacco industry litigation. Um, they engage in the same sort of tactics to manipulate the scientific literature and to manipulate regulators, lawmakers, and consumers. Um, they, we've seen in the documents how they set up front groups, um, organizations that appear to be independent, but are actually being um, backed financially and directed by chemical industry interests. We see academics around the world who are uh, getting money funneled their way um, in exchange for their support and um, of the propaganda and to push the policy measures that, that, uh, that further the agenda of these companies. 
Um, we see how they manipulate the scientific assessments uh, by regulators. So all of this was laid out very neatly in Montana's internal documents and then and then other documents that uh, that I've gotten and other people have obtained from regulators. So that's what I put I put all of that in my book um, so so that people could could have an easy way to to read it uh, and understand it. and And the jurors certainly understood when it was laid out for them in court. Right. So in the very least, even if they had proven that glyphosate wasn't a carcinogen, which I think is not the case, I think it absolutely is, they still went through this whole cover-up um, that would would be just nefarious in and of itself. So it's sort of a double whammy. So let's talk about regulatory capture for a moment, because I think it's pretty clear that corporate interests have superseded public safety when it comes to the actions of the EPA and the FDA. I think that's um, that's just how it's become. And now you have Rem, uh, Rep. Lamar Smith, who is trying to eliminate the IARC through defunding it, which I think is also driven by um, regulatory capture and the money that he's taken from large chemical companies. The European assessment is being investigated um, because it's been shown that they took the first draft from Monsanto and they barely redlined it. So I don't think that should be held up as the high bar. Um, And as far as as transparency and the use of glyphosate, I I just think a proper risk assessment should be done. And what's happening here is that the EPA is is doing the hazard assessment, calling it not likely, without doing the slope factor and the risk assessment. I'm guessing because it favors Monsanto's interest for selling it abroad. Um, What's the scoop with, with his actions? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of the most disturbing, probably, things that's come out of this, uh, I guess, aside from everyone, all these people with cancer. But uh, Monsanto's position um, that this international agency for research on cancer, a science-based organization of independent cancer researchers, um, that that they should be blamed and that they should be punished for categorizing Monsanto's chemical as a probable carcinogen uh, is is being taken up by our lawmakers and. At a time when so many people are being diagnosed from cancer and dying from cancer, we certainly should not have our lawmakers taking money away from cancer research scientists. But that's exactly what Lamar Smith and Andy Biggs and others uh, on Capitol Hill have been trying to do, um, specifically at the direction and request of Monsanto. It's a little bit frightful. Um, and. I think the other side of the equation is that Europe has a lot tougher uh, laws when it comes to approving chemicals. And in fact, there are many banned chemicals in Europe that are sold widely here in the United States, and many are likely carcinogens. Um, I think the reason for this is the United States, the proof of harm must be demonstrated before uh, regulatory action is taken, meaning that it seems backwards to me. It means that they have to prove that the chemical actually causes harm or are they just just they're coming from a point where they're assuming it's safe, which is ludicrous. It should be the other way around. We should be assuming that these chemicals are not safe, test them to see if they're safe, and then decide whether they can come out into the market. It seems like we're living in a giant petri dish here in the United States. Um, do you agree with that? Yes, I mean certainly we do have a different uh, approach toward the chemicals that we introduce into our environment. Uh, as you said, in Europe, it's a much more precautionary view, where they really want uh, substances to be proven safe. They want a body of evidence of their safety. 
Um, here in the United States, we do look at it a bit of the opposite. Um, that unless unless it's proven harmful, um, you know, it's it's pretty much allowed to to be out there. Um, and, and with glyphosate, this weed killing agent uh, in Roundup and other things, what we've seen is is that Monsanto's called the shots with the regulators, and even when the the EPA scientists said. This looks dangerous. This looks like it could cause cancer. These studies show us this risk. Monsanto will push back and, and say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you EPA scientists are wrong. And the EPA's position currently is that it's not likely to cause cancer, which is a direct contradiction to this international agency, which says it probably causes cancer. And But what you see in internal EPA documents again, is that their own scientists don't agree with that assessment. And they say that the assessment, to get to that assessment, you have to break certain scientific standards and rules to get to a point where you can say it's not likely to cause cancer. Um, so, you know, it's very controversial. It's, there's a lot of detailed sort of scientific data. Um, so it's hard for everyday people to, to understand and get their arms around. Um, but, you know, this this trial really showed that, that it can be done, that jurors can understand when they're given enough time and enough detail. According to unsealed court documents that have been released to the public from the trial of Monsanto, uh, where they're defending uh, their blockbuster product Roundup and its active, in, uh, active chemical glyphosate, these unsealed court documents make it very clear that Monsanto representatives had contact with federal regulators at the EPA, at uh, Health and Human Services, in order to squash investigations by the federal government into the carcinogenity of Roundup. You know, some of the Monsanto scientists were out on Twitter basically trying to argue that that jurors were now deciding... Um, things of science and that they weren't qualified for that. But that's really not the case here. To assume that everybody on that jury wasn't capable of critical reasoning is absolutely absurd. They can certainly hear evidence and make deductions based on what they're being told. And that is not an issue of science at all. So uh, it should be it should be noted that that uh, this wasn't a bunch of, bunch of dummies sitting on the jury. I mean, right. they had several PhDs on the jury. They had a, a woman who was a molecular biologist, I believe, was mm-hmm. her, her title. I mean, um, if you look at the jury notes um, that were sent back to the judge, they're very specific, very science-oriented, very detailed, and very interested in making sure that they understand the data. Uh, so I think for the chemical industry to say, you know, the jurors just aren't as smart as we are, you yeah. know, is, is very insulting and, and it's just wrong. I agree. It's completely insulting and wrong. And now that I'm hearing there was a molecular biologist on the jury, I'm even more disgusted. That's absolutely absurd because the way they were talking about it was it was like, you know, high school level education can't make any deductions. And one of them, and I knew that he was a front from a front group because three or four years ago, my Monsanto and one of these front groups that you were talking about, they created this idea and put out memes and various uh, propaganda messaging that was tying the belief of being anti-GMO with also being anti-vaccine. They were trying to tie these two things together to say that if, that these are the same group of people and they're all anti-science, which is just crazy to me because 
GMOs um, are certainly not established science. Vaccines are. I mean, these are two very different animals. And to try to group them together as a means of selling your product, I thought was particularly gross. But that's what he was saying in his, this one gentleman was saying in his post that like, oh, they're just like the anti-vaxxers. These jurors don't know what they're talking about. And I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy yeah i mean they try to come up with various ways obviously to discredit um people like me or scientists and other journalists anyone who you know raises critical questions or points to evidence of risk or harm that could affect profits for these products they try Mm -hmm. to figure out ways to discredit them and um right so saying that people who question the science around gmos or question the science around certain chemicals are the same people who question vaccines. You know, in some cases it's true. I think there are some individuals who have, you know, that, that sentiment, but mm-hmm. um, certainly not all of them. It's, right, right. it's different population. You know, it's, it's a it's a disingenuous red herring type of thing that they throw Precisely. out. But it's only one of, one of many. Yeah, it's, it, that's exactly right. I'm sure that there are some, but it is a red herring. And you certainly aren't going to see as any scientist saying, I'm skeptical of the safety of a GMO that's going to say I'm skeptical of the safety of a polio vaccine. It's it's just not going to happen. Um, So Monsanto also has a history of attacking and trying to discredit any scientists and journalists, like you mentioned, that is skeptical of their claims. But at the same time, um, we've seen some journalists sort of play footsie with Monsanto, where they literally do pieces that I've seen even in the New York Times, where it's verbatim full of their talking points. Well, yeah, and I've written um, uh, pretty extensively about actually a former colleague at Reuters Newswire. I worked at Reuters for um, 17, almost 18 years of my career, and uh, it was very disappointing um, to see that she uh, worked up what what at best could be described as fake news, Um, a a story that was handed to her by Monsanto. She adopted the the exact narrative and spin and talking points that Monsanto um, requested, and um, she put out a false narrative uh, that related to this whole debate about the science. And of course, Monsanto then used it, spun it out with press releases, Google ads, um, all of the different front groups pushed it out. And, it, and it's actually one of the things that helped motivate our lawmakers, Lamar Smith and others, to try to strip funding from IR. According to information gathered by the committee, there appear to be serious problems with the science underlying IARC's assessment of glyphosate. The news media recently revealed evidence of data deletion and manipulation of draft assessments before final publication. IARC's conclusion about glyphosate relied only on data that was favorable to its conclusion and ignored contradictory data. In its assessment, IARC did no direct evaluation of glyphosate's effect on humans, no evaluation whatsoever. Specifically, IARC appears to have intentionally omitted data that showed glyphosate does not cause cancer. It's no surprise that the monograph program has refused to publish any of its draft assessments. If there's nothing to hide, why the secrecy? story about supposed IARC wrongdoing. Um, if you actually look at the documents and the data, it's pretty easy to see that none of it is true. Um, but most people don't seem to want to do the homework and actually go look at the data. They like to just look at the headlines. So what are some of the worst front groups out there that you see? Um, 
doing advertising and creating memes with a website? So, you know, the American Council on Science and Health, ACSH, um, is probably one of the most prolific. And they have a long history of defending, you know, every <laughs> every chemical, you know, every um, product that uh, is shown to be dangerous to people. You know, they're out there for hire uh, trying to defend it. And they've certainly been doing that for glyphosate. Um, they write articles in uh, USA Today and other places. Uh, again, criticizing and harassing scientists um, and and anyone who raises risks uh, or points of evidence that, that show harm with a product. There's also Academics Review, um, which again is a front group that was set up uh, by Monsanto PR agents um, to look like it was independent. Uh, we have that in the inter- internal Monsanto documents talking about how they want to target people and uh, go after people, but they don't want anybody to know Monsanto's behind it because that would affect the credibility. Um, so there's Genetic Literacy Project. There's Biofortified. Um, you can see these, hopefully, listed in these internal Monsanto documents that have come out in Discovery. You see that they list these groups that claim to be independent. Uh, Monsanto lists them as partners to help push out propaganda. So... Um, folks get sort of reeled in by this and they can't really separate what's real from fantasy because the money is so, um, it's so dark. It's not so obvious um, to your average Joe when he's trying to look for these things. It's a shame. So um, you did a second piece in The Guardian I wanted to talk about, uh, about the U.S. researchers, the U.S. National Toxicology Program. This is the first time the NTP had done any examination of the chemical. I mean, this had been on the market now for how many years? And they're just finally getting around to actually doing research on it, which is a little bit frightful. And it, it sort of harkens back to the earlier point of this, um, the way the chemicals are put on the market. And then if they aren't shown to do harm, they stay on the market. It's backwards. And I feel like the NTP tests were requested by the EPA after IARC had classified glyphosate as a carcinogen, and they finally are catching up and realize maybe we should have been testing this all along. Maybe it's a problem. And that was, what, 2015, I think you said? So um, what other things related to the way Monsanto has um, sort of protected itself by disallowing independent research um, out with, with other scientists that aren't on their team? Yeah, well, the National Toxicology Program um, is really interesting in, in what you were talking about. So the background is that our regulators have not ever required extensive safety testing on the formulations. Um, and the formulations are such things as Roundup or Ranger Pro. They're the products that are actually sold and used by consumers and farmers and people who spray it on parks and playgrounds. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Carrie, because it is the formulations that matter. A single chemical unto itself might be okay, but it's, when it's mixed together in combination with other chemicals, it can become deadly. So what they were examining was the actual formalization of Roundup. So thank you for clarifying that. It's a very good point. Yeah, so, and, and that's what's so important. And what we see in the regulatory history and the archives of the documents is that uh, any time that APA has raised really discussion of testing for formulations, the industry, Crop Life America, which lobbies for Monsanto and the others, has pushed back. And Monsanto has pushed back. They, they have pushed back against testing of the formulations. Um, and that is precisely because 
independent scientists have shown that these formulations can be more toxic than glyphosate by itself. Surfactants and other ingredients when used with glyphosate you know, have been shown to have really harmful effects and do damage to human DNA um, as well as to laboratory animals that it's tested on. So the National Toxicology Program only this year, early in 2018, completed the very first round of testing on the formulated products. And it's very early. What they did find in the in the very first step here is that uh, there is cytotoxicity. That yes, these formulations do uh, do damage to human cells. So it's only one first step. Um, now, many scientists around many scientists around the world are have been doing this for years and have already gotten to the point where they say, yeah, I mean, it's cytotoxic. There's oxidative stress associated with it. Like the markers for cancer are there according to um, an array of independent scientists. I know Monsanto had kept its formulation um, confidential as a business secret for years. How? Well, I mean, it's not that complicated. They simply go buy the product. You know, if you, if you want to test the product, you go buy the product and test the product. I mean, that's what our natural toxicology program has done. They, they went out and purchased different formulations from lawn and garden stores, and, and then they tested it. The actual uh, formulations are still considered trade secrets. So how much of this or how much of that are the actual mixtures and combinations? Monsanto holds those details pretty close. I see. Okay, so they don't have the actual formulation from the company, but they are testing the consumer product from various samples. That Okay, that makes sense. Right. Glyphosate uh, in and of itself is, is a generic now. It, uh, the patent that Monsanto held expired in the year 2000. Okay. So there are so. many generic formulations as well out there. So let's talk about your book for a moment. Um, it's a fascinating read about all of this expose. How did you come to write the book? What was what was the thing that originally motivated it? And walk us through a little bit of it, because I would like our audience um, to get some information on it so they can go out and read up on, on what Monsanto's been doing. <laughs> Yeah, we hope somebody will read the book right now. It's actually been doing really well. Um, won the Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. It won an award for outstanding uh, gold medal work from the Independent Book Publishers uh, Association. And um, I frankly, it wasn't my idea to write the book. Um, a publish a publisher uh, was aware of that I was doing a lot of reporting at Reuters on all these issues and breaking a lot of you know, very compelling stories and uh, came to me and asked me if I would put it all in a book. And I said, I don't think anybody will read a book about a pesticide. That sounds crazy. And they said, no, people really will read a book. So um, there you go. So uh, we drew up a contract and they paid me a little money and I uh, wrote the book and and uh, then the whole world exploded. And, and now, now it's a very, very big deal, which is great timing. Um, but the book really does, if people do want to understand, the book tells the stories of farmers, farm families, um, people who have lost you know, loved ones, um, people who are fighting cancer. And then, of course, farmers who aren't concerned at all. The book includes the stories of scientists who've been harassed and uh, you know, lost their jobs or um, had their credibility threatened. It um, tells you the history of Monsanto, the history of the chemical, a little bit about food and farming, talks about pesticide residues in our foods and all the government data that most of us don't know about that tells us about all the weed killers and insecticides and fungicides that are in our foods that we eat every day. Um, you know, it's 
there's a lot packed in. It's not very long, but there's a lot packed in there if you care about food and farming and health and the environment. Indeed. So uh, most of this information came through Freedom of Information Act requests, I believe, right? Yes, my I've been doing Freedom of Information Act requests for for you know years and years and years. EPA, FDA, USDA, National Toxicology Program, CDC, NIHS. So yeah, I have stacks and stacks and file cabinets and CDs and discs <laughs> and <laughs> of documents that are very hard to keep track of. But uh, when you do put them together, it's a pretty compelling uh, mm-hmm. story about you know the really how our regulators are failing us in a lot They're of failing us. I agree. The regulatory capture is really, you know, it's not just at the FDA and the EPA. It's in almost every aspect of our lives. I mean, look what's going on with net neutrality in the FCC. I, corporate yeah. America has really infiltrated our government on a, almost every level, and they are successfully able to do whatever policy they want done. So it's high time people pushed it back against that. I mean, we're losing our democracy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think we have swung too far uh, when, it, when we talk about capitalism and mm-hmm. uh, the worship of wealth, the worship of money and power. Uh, we've handed over the keys yeah. uh, to, those, to those who put profits before people and we're seeing the effects in declining health and uh, damage to our environment. That's right. And in fact, damage to the environment is the other um, side of the equation that I don't think gets enough attention. A lot of folks don't realize that we have a crash in our bee population, which is very detrimental. We need bees to pollinate our crops. It's um, they're very important part of our ecology. But we also know the widespread use of Roundup has um, most absolutely um, helped create a crash in the bee population. So this is another deadly side to overuse of pesticides. Um, a company that controls a quarter of the entire global seed market makes a bid for the world's largest pesticide and fertilizer company. Together, they would control a third of the globe's seeds and pesticides market. Now, unsurprisingly, there is opposition. The company in question is Monsanto. It wants to pay $45 billion to buy Swiss agri-chemicals company Syngenta, who isn't keen on the deal. It's the concentration of ownership that is worrying six American and European companies, Monsanto, DuPont, Syngenta, Dow, Bayer, and BASF control the entire genetically modified seeds planted in the world. And more than three decades ago, there were thousands of seed manufacturers. None controlled more than 1% of the market. Well, seeds aside, a real concern for many is that one of the chemicals in Monsanto's flagship weed killer was, according to the World Health Organization, probably carcinogenic. In various parts of the world, Monsanto's weed killer that contains glyphosate has been banned. In the meantime, the European Union has banned other chemicals known as neonicotinoids in pesticides because they have been linked to serious harm to bees. I worry about what happens in 30 years if, if all the bees are gone. I don't understand why there isn't any sort of long-term thinking in this area. Yeah, I mean, these pesticides, well, obviously glyphosate, uh, this ingredient in Roundup, is, is found to be pretty pervasive in honey, for example. You know, so obviously mm-hmm. the bees are picking it up to such an extent that it's, it's showing up in the honey uh, that we put on our toast wow. or in our tea. Um, but yeah, neonicotinoids, another uh, class of pesticides, um, and glyphosate, 
are, are uh, shown in research to be particularly harmful to bees as well as to uh, butterflies and other pollinators. And, uh, you know, we, even if we don't care about, I guess, biodiversity, uh, we should care that these pollinators, you know, are responsible for a big chunk of our food supply and mm-hmm. um, are, yeah. are very necessary to the, the interplay of environment and, and human. And we need, we need to protect them. We need to protect them. I agree. It's going to be a problem. So um, you were also talking about how there's been a rise in pesticides being found in the food chain. Um, and I know in one of the other uh, Freedom of Information Act dumps, you found some um, some uh, some emails from the FDA that they were concerned about embracing for a further increase in pesticides in the food chain. And I think one of the notable pesticides being discussed was one being sold by Dow Chemical, uh, 2,4-D. Right. 2,4-D is an older um, herbicide, older than uh, glyphosate is. It was used in uh, Vietnam. It was a part of the Agent Orange uh, combination that was used mm. uh, to uh, defoliate in Vietnam and was shown to, uh, as part of the, the chemical combination that was shown to do so much damage to people who were exposed to it. But yeah, because glyphosate has been so overused in the environment, um, Monsanto has pushed it, you know, to become uh, the most widely used agrochemical in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's been so widely used, weeds have become resistant to it. So farmers are used to be able to kill weeds very easily in their fields. Now uh, finding that they have to use more and more and more uh, herbicide. And so what they're doing is they're spraying 2,4-D as well as glyphosate, and in many cases also dicamba on new genetically engineered crops. And so, yes, the FDA has said internally that they need to brace for, you know, very high levels and expanded <laughs> uh, residue levels um, of these weed killers in our food. And they're, and they're trying to test for that right now. That's just frightful. So this was something that would was used in the formulation of Agent Orange. Is it not banned for use in household products? Uh, 2,4-D is, is a pretty commonly used insecticide. It's, it's a pretty popular one. Um, and in fact, it's, it's actually rated by the International Agency for Research on Cancer a little bit lower than glyphosate. It's considered to be a possible human carcinogen, uh, while, while, uh, glyphosate is considered a probable human carcinogen. <laughs> Just, it's like... It's like there's worse and then there's even more worse at this point. Because I, I don't think either one of them sounds like anything we should be ingesting in our food. Um, wow. So, you don't, yeah, you don't like the word human carcinogen in conjunction right. with what we're eating. Right? Exactly. It's like for me, I'm like, I'm just going to buy organic then. I don't need that in my diet. But it sounds like it's just you. we've gotten to the point where it's just infiltrated everything. Even if you're careful about what you eat, you're probably getting some exposure to these chemicals. It's just literally everywhere. Um, so what it are some really of the- is. We've created these these handful of very powerful companies, Bayer, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, uh, BASF, Syngenta. Um, they have perpetuated this notion that we have to depend on pesticides, their pesticides that they sell, mm-hmm. that we have to depend on them for food production. And that if we do not depend on them and use them widely, we're all going to starve to death. Now, the evidence and the data um, does not back up that statement, but that's a statement that they've made over and over and over again, and, and people have bought into it, and farmers have bought into it, and 
uh, you know, our regulators and lawmakers essentially are just telling us that, you know, yeah, sorry, you know, that we're going to have all these pesticides in our foods and we know they contribute to human health ailments and disease and birth defects and neurodevelopmental problems with our children, but uh, you know, it's, the risks are worth the rewards. Um, mm-hmm. The point of, of whitewash in a lot of my research um, is that, first of all, people are not even being given accurate information about the risks right. so that they so they cannot make a, an, a balanced um, decision and we're not we're not making accurate um, provisions in our public policies because we don't have good information about the risks. Mm-hmm. We're only told about the rewards. Um, and secondly, um, my, the point of the book really is that, you know, we don't need, no, we don't need, it's a fallacy. We don't need to take these risks to feed ourselves and, right. and to have a healthy um, and nutritious food supply. So there's a lot to unpack, but, um, you know, if people, everyday moms and dads don't pay attention and don't inform themselves and educate themselves, uh, you know, we're all just getting steamrolled by a handful of multi-billion dollar conglomerates um, who are just looking to, you know, profit off of our poor health. Right. I don't disagree with that. So now let's talk about GMOs for a second, because this is almost, even though these two conversations are related, they're not precisely the same. Obviously, the main motivation for Monsanto is to be able to sell their seeds and the Roundup chemical at the same time. Um, And just for a little background information to a listener that maybe is not clear on what that is, not all genetically modified organisms are about protecting them, uh, the crop against chemical pesticides like Roundup. This is a specific type of GMO. There's other kinds too. Um, but what what kind of arguments do you have for those that might say, because I've, I've had conversations with folks that believe that maybe the glyphosate is, is a carcinogen and we shouldn't be exposed to it, but that GMOs can be okay, that those those two things aren't mutually exclusive. What's your opinion on that issue? Uh, probably in, in a broad sense, just the way you've stated it. So genetically engineered crops, uh, really, you know, it's not one thing. It's it's many, many things. There are many different types of crops and there are many different types of traits, genetic changes to DNA. Now, the most of the crops planted, there are 189 million hectares um, of, of land around the world that are planted to genetically engineered crops annually. The bulk of those are designed to do one thing, and that's to be sprayed with herbicides. (laughs) They're designed to be herbicide tolerant. So if you want to talk about what do most of the GMOs in the world do, well, they encourage the use of herbicides. That's what they do. Now, if you want to talk about a much smaller subset of GMOs, you could talk about insect tolerant, or I'm sorry, insect resistant, BT, and those those have reduced the use of insecticides, so there's a benefit there. Um, there are some environmental ramifications that are maybe not so good, but it has reduced the type of the uh, amount of insecticide volumes of insecticide. There are also disease resistant genetically engineered um, crops like a papaya. Uh, that's been shown to be very helpful to papaya birds, but again, that's less than one percent of the G- GMOs that are planted around the world. So, you know, you can there's a non-browning apple, you know, so you cut your apple and it doesn't get brown. Well, you know, maybe that's a good thing, maybe not. I want to know personally if my apple's old. You know, I want to know if it's been sitting there for three weeks. Um, 
but maybe some people don't. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, you, I don't think you can lump them all together. Um, but I do, I do think that if you try to understand GMOs, you have to understand that, that they were engineered and designed and the very first ones rolled out were designed to do nothing but promote the use of herbicides, specifically Monsanto's Roundup. That's why they were called Roundup Ready Crops. And even today, some, you know, when were they introduced? 30 years ago, mid 1990s. Even today, the bulk of those planted around the world are genetically engineered to, to do one thing, and that's promote the use of herbicides. I think uh, I agree with you on that. So I also think, and you can tell me whether this is right or wrong, I have, um, you know, some of these larger companies, they tout the work that they do with like drought tolerant GMOs as, you know, a big deal. And you're saying what it's less than 5% of the crop. So are they doing this on purpose as a PR thing? Whereas they can point to this, look, we made this drought tolerant rice and now it's going to be able to feed folks in in a drought area. So they point to that to make themselves look like they're better companies than what they actually are sort of a thing, like a PR perspective. I think the companies very definitely have struggled ever since the beginning um, to figure out a narrative that was going to appeal to consumers. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the headquarters of Monsanto and DuPont, and I've talked to Dow and visited their test plots and things or their demonstration fields. Um, They've really tried to hone a message that they're working for the consumer and they're working for farmers. The problem is, that when you look at the products they rolled out, very few of them do anything other than promote the sales of chemicals. Now, they did, DuPont and Monsanto both raced to release the drought-tolerant corn, what they called a drought-tolerant corn a few years ago. DuPont's was not a GMO. It was not genetically engineered. It was conventionally bred. Monsanto's was a GMO. They both kind of performed kind of okay, not really okay. They both had some problems. Um, the companies found that drought-tolerant technology doesn't really work as great in the field as it might in a laboratory. And, um, you know, but those those kinds of things are out there. Um, you know, so again, they're working on them, but, but that's not the, that's not what a GMO is really all about, um, at, least, at least not today. Now, maybe 50 years from now, yes, maybe we'll see a whole host of GMOs that are more nutritious and grow without water and, you know, I don't, I don't know, but, but that's not where we are today. Grow without water. Can you imagine? <laughs> we actually might need that at some point. Um, right. So I agree with you on that. I think, um, I think they intentionally blur the distinction because it serves what they're trying to do. And I do think that these pesticides are detrimental to our health and environment. It's certainly not a very good selling point to you know, no. come out and say, Embrace GMOs because they help us sell herbicides. I mean, that's that's not a good marketing strategy. <laughs> no, there's that. Um, that's yeah. a fair point. So uh, there was a push in California a couple years back where we tried to get labeling done for GMOs because, you know, for the basic premise that consumers should really um, be able to know what they're buying in their foods. And obviously the industry spent an insane amount of money to defeat the proposition. So, and at the, at the end of the day, it didn't pass. Um, now, are you aware of there being any, any other public policy pushes in this area to push for labeling on food products? 
Well, I mean, you know, we have the whole labeling issue right now. Um, you know, our federal government passed a law that basically nullified efforts like that in California and, uh, and other other states that would mandate um, GMO labeling. And they set up this sort of odd, you know, maybe you'll put labels on your food, but they'll have a little smiley face. So when you sell your product, you know, it's... Um, or other people can, you know, put barcodes on their products and things. So, you know, we, we are moving forward kind of in a halting uh, way to get some type of information to consumers about foods that have ingredients that are genetically engineered. But uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be very transparent or consumer friendly. No, and, you know, that's the problem. This is my big worry is... Uh, people, the public, general public needs to trust the system if they're going to be able to make rational decisions. And when you have such blatant um, corporate interests overriding consumer protections, the people, the, the populace no longer trust the system. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the corporations. And I think one of the unintended byproducts of that is you do have a, a, a growth in some anti-science uh, resentment which isn't helpful either. And, you know, so when Monsanto turns around and says that they are transparent and this stuff is, nobody believes them. So, you know, I just, it's very frustrating to see this going on because it has so many um, unintended consequences in addition to the obvious ones that, that are the corporate benefits of profiteering and all these other things. I think the damage to the system in general is, is very detrimental from a science point of view. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the science has been so, and this isn't, didn't just start with the agrochemical industry either, GMOs or, you know, the, when did it start? Who knows? Who knows? Tobacco, Tobacco for that. sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, blurring, um, and definitely you see it with climate change. I oh, mean, maybe yeah. that's the best example right oh, now. Yeah. If, if you muddy the waters and, and, you know, get people to doubt the science and then mm -hmm. but, but believe in your science and believe in your experts, um, you know, you, you can really control control the day in, right. in Washington. And uh, consumers, I think, are so confused and so frustrated um, and find it so hard to really get to good answers that they often just turn away. Mm -hmm. And um, that certainly doesn't help us. No, it doesn't help us. And I think the anti-vaccine movement is sort of an example of that happening, even though it's untrue that there's a relationship between autism and vaccines. There's still a, a large percentage of the population that won't, they refuse to believe that that's the case. And, and, you know, if you look at a lot of the reasons why they started to distrust the pharmaceutical companies and the government regulators is because of these reasons we're discussing right now. So, we need to get back to a place where independent research is, um, you know, there it's peer reviewed by actual peers that are independent and not, you know, having profits given to them um, for taking a certain side, you know, and I would think after the whole debacle with the, the tobacco lawsuits that we would have learned some sort of lesson in this area, but it seems to have gotten worse, not better, which is just yeah. sad. European regulators um, right now, because they have been so shaken by the disclosures in the Monsanto papers, um, mm. the, the disclosures that have come out through Monsanto's own internal documents, they are so shaken by what they've seen in terms of 
ghostwriting and manipulation of scientific literature, that they are really trying to overhaul their regulatory structure to a certain extent to be more transparent um, and to rely more on independent science and, and to have the science more scrutiny uh, in a public way. So, um, you know, there there is change, not really in the U.S., but we're seeing it in, in Europe and elsewhere. U.S. Right to Know is suing the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, over failure to comply with a Freedom of Information Act request. What is that about? The sugar in CDC um, is something that my colleague Gary Ruskin is working on. I've done a little bit of work on it. But, yeah, I mean, what we're finding um, in the in the beverage industry, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and others, is that there's a, a similar playbook, if you will, a similar effort to dominate the science and control the regulatory apparatus um, to downplay, you know, the risks of these sugary sodas and their role in obesity and health problems. And, you know, we're finding uh, a lot of, you know, sort of subversive and secretive connections between the Centers for Disease Control and Coca-Cola. And so we're trying to understand that better. Um, and and have asked the CDC to give us freedom of information documents so that we can understand these connections and relationships better. And the CDC just won't do it. Now, a year or so ago, gosh, I've lost track of time, but um, I actually there was a scientist with inside CDC who um, became sort of a secret source and was able to give us some information about what's been going on in there. And you know, it was really alarming and really eye-opening. So it's not. A wild goose chase on our part. There is evidence of, um, you know, collusion, uh, cozy relationships between Coca-Cola and CDC. Um, and CDC is just, you know, trying to shut down our investigation. Right. Um, so uh, there was an article that I had read in the Huffington Post that talked about Coca-Cola. And I guess there was a scientist, Dr. Barbara Bowman was her name, who is a director at the CDC that had been giving them guidance, which is in my, you know, that's ridiculous. You can't tell a company what they have to do to get their stuff passed through and you're hiding stuff. So I think where there's smoke, there's probably some fire. Um, I hope you guys get get your uh, documents and can do some reporting on that because the sugar industry is also very nefarious in its practices. Um, And I know, you know, if you flip over the back of any product and it'll tell you like it breaks down the ingredients and gives you the calories, you know, the labeling, you'll notice that it never gives you the percentage of your daily diet for sugar. It just tells you how many grams are, are, are in there. And the reason that is the case is because they lobbied the government to not have that put on the label. So if you're, you know, if you only get the gram count, you don't know that you're having 120% of your daily requirement of sugar in one sitting. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> and when you see internally, when you see these documents, this was, this was what was so interesting. Yeah. I mean, when I reported, this was, gosh, was this just last year, two years ago, about two years ago, when I reported these um, secret communications that were going on between uh, Coca-Cola uh, industry people and this Barbara Bowman. Um, she, I mean, two days after the story came out, she uh, retired all of a sudden, very suddenly and unexpectedly um, retired. And there are, um, you know, and she she was a very um, high ranking official. She was director of the CDC's division for heart disease and, and stroke prevention, and had a lot of power inside CDC. But she was basically helping direct 
government funds, CDC, CDC funds, to sort of some, you know, private pet projects of the industry. And, um, you know, there's a lot more, I think, that's going on in there. Um, we have little tidbits of it, and U.S. Right to Know is trying to dig it up. But, you know, again, very powerful forces are trying to uh, get, get in the way and keep us from information that the public has a right to know. Right, which obviously, you know, this is another example of them trying to disclose information that I'm going to assume at this point is damning. If it wasn't damning, why would they try to hide it? It just doesn't make any sense on a purely superficial um, level. So what else was in the Monsanto papers um, that we haven't discussed already? I know that there was a large amount of these internal documents. What were some of the other highlights that we didn't talk about? I mean, the, the evidence of ghostwriting, you know, people probably have heard about that. This is, um, I just had an, another piece out a couple of days ago that lays out for people kind of one really good example of that, of how these papers that, that currently are sitting uh, in the critical reviews of toxicology, um, a very, you know, highly esteemed scientific journal published peer-reviewed papers in there, um, it, it claims to be an independent review of the safety of glyphosate. And it states in the acknowledgments at the end of this paper that no one from Monsanto reviewed any of the documents, you know, or, or had any hate or had any hand in them. And yet Monsanto's own internal documents show Monsanto's people editing, you know, editing this paper, moving things around, rewriting this paper, and basically telling the authors, what they're going to say and what they're not going to say, even getting into some arguments with the authors about what's going to be said. Um, and and they they wanted these papers to attack the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and they did. Um, and yet, if you just look in the published literature and you don't know any better, you think, wow, this group of independent scientists who have nothing to do with Monsanto you know, found this chemical to be so very safe. So it's just one sign of the trickery. I mean, there's others. We have a scientist who, um, again, looks to be independent, was writing articles in Forbes magazine that, you know, talked about how safe glyphosate was and ridiculous it was to think it wasn't. Um, but then you see in the internal papers um, that, well, gee, uh, that article that he wrote that appears in Forbes, Forbes magazine, he didn't really write it. Uh, a Monsanto PR agent wrote it, um, and they just stuck his name on it. So it's things like that that um, you know people would know about. You know, it really it's, yeah, it's crazy that a scientist would put their reputation on the line in this way. And you know, I want to bring up Dr. Kevin Fulta only because I got in a public argument with him. And he was claiming that he had never received any money from any of these companies, but he actually said to me that all of his funding was um, paid for by taxpayers, which was such a bold-faced lie. It took me 15 minutes to find emails where he had pitched Monsanto a whole program, and they paid him 25k to um, travel to universities and speak on on the subject of GMOs. And then I also found. Um, their agriculture, who is now acquiring Monsanto, had paid him, what, 60, 50,000 euros for something else. So, I mean, it was just a bald-faced fly. And then I went to his transparency page on the University of Florida's website, and you saw a list of, of who's who of lobby groups, you know, and they always sound like 
their government groups like the pork board or the seed board, you know, whatever these names are. And they're meant to sound that way, but they are front groups for industry trying to push an agenda. And when I produced this evidence and I tweeted it back at him, he he actually doubled down and kept saying that he hadn't taken any of the money. It was just the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. Um, and then I know he was suing uh, the New York Times for the expose that they had done. So I just don't, I think that finally got dropped, but I just don't understand why he would sell himself out for that amount of money. Cause it's really not that much money in the bigger picture. And as a scientist, if you don't have your reputation, everything's lost. Your peers won't trust you. Um, your your entire body of research comes into question because perhaps you didn't go about things the right way. You know, the deceit's there. Um, and I imagine that he's not the only one that's engaged in these sort of practices. So it's um, it's a very depressing thing to witness. Yeah, I mean, it. Kevin Fult is a particular <laughs> character in this saga. Um, you know, and he's in my book, uh, you know, emails that have come out that U.S. Rights Know obtained through um, state record requests of his university uh, very clearly show a, a very deep collaboration with Monsanto, an exchange of funds, um, cooperation on messaging and, and programming propaganda. Uh, and it's very silly. I mean, even like in his lawsuit, the New York Times reported on the documents that we obtained. So, so one of the examples that Fulta uses, you know, to say, oh, everybody's misrepresenting his situation. He had nothing to do with Monsanto. Uh, he says he never received, never received a, an unrestricted grant from Monsanto, never received any form of grant. And in fact, sued the New York Times and um, claims that they wrongfully reported that he received an unrestricted grant. Yet, if you look at the email that Monsanto sent to him, it says, please accept this unrestricted grant. Uh, you know, it's, it's exactly, it, it, it's, just, it's just ludicrous um, for him to, uh, to, to argue that Monsanto wasn't giving him money uh, and that it, he didn't get an unrestricted grant. He very happily uh, got an unrestricted grant and was very enthusiastic in one case, even telling Monsanto, you know, I'm happy to, to write and sign on to whatever you want, you know, basically. So it is amazing. Um, and he just keeps doubling down. And I don't, how is, how is it that his university is okay with this? I, that I, is the question everybody asks, right? I, you know, I don't know. I think we live, you know, larger than Kevin Fulta. We, we live in a post-truth, yeah. you know, era or, or who was it that Giuliani said the other day, <laughs> truth is not truth. <laughs> or, or something to that effect. Uh, it seems like everyone wants to have their own version of truth these days. And Which is it's, just not truth anymore. I mean, truth is verifiable. It's universal. It's objective. I, you know, people, you're right. People want to conflate their opinion with truth. Or I love the term personal truth because that's just oxymoronic on so many levels. But I think that is true. Um, people cave into this idea of antecedent bias that they only want to confirm what they already believe to be factual. And actually on the bigger picture, you're right on that. I'm more concerned with academia and our universities. The more we have definanced our public university system, the more money is coming in from corporate America and other donors. And we've seen 
for example, the Koch brothers give money to universities. And in some of some of the cases where they gave the university money, they had contracts that allowed them to have final say in the hiring of professors. This is profoundly disturbing. Our universities are supposed to be independent research. They're not supposed to be there to promote a certain ideology of a donor. It's frightful that this is going on in the country. It is. And when I've interviewed, you know, and talked to different universities about this, you know, they and researchers, they say, yeah, I mean, we we see the problem in it, but we need money. You know, we need the money to do the research and provide the education and to do the work that needs to be done. And there's a validity to that argument, um, you know, that we're not providing the resources in this country and we're, and we're leaving it up to the corporations who, of course, are going to then control the outcomes and to, to a certain extent. That's correct. We've left this funding gap open. We've spent the last 30 years definancing our university system, and this is where the roosters come home to roost. Uh, I know, for example, here in California, the UC system, which was once tuition-free, is now getting less than 10% of its funding from the state of California. So at this particular junction, if it wasn't for the donations of um you know, the alumni, et cetera, they'd be in deep trouble. And that's on top of the huge tuition spikes that we've seen. So this is, to me, it's an area we need to look at. And at the same time, I look at the defense budget that is just completely bloated and increased by a bazillion dollars more this past year. We should be, we should be taking some of that money and, and reinvesting it into our education system. I think that's a much more beneficial spend at this point. Because education is it's not just for the betterment of the students, students, which is important because that's good for society to have educated population. But it also infiltrates into all of the things that we're talking about here today in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, no, I, I agree, definitely. And I think what it all comes down to, hopefully, is just people, you know, paying attention and waking up and educating themselves and, you know, standing up for a healthier environment. Uh, and a healthier future for our kids. You know, we need to grab our world back from these pesticide companies and, mm-hmm. and the other giant corporations that are looking to profit, uh, you know, at our expense. That's right. Our health, no less. Um, so what are you working on currently? I, I know that there are um, some more lawsuits against Monsanto coming down the pike. Are you going to be following them? That's all I do pretty much That's every day is <laughs> Read documents, talk to talk to plaintiffs, talk to attorneys, talk to scientists. Um, I'm looking at uh, residue data now, MRLs, um, and the science behind the pesticide residue levels that are legally allowed in our food. It sounds like a pretty boring topic, but it's actually pretty important and profound. So I, um, I'm hoping to, to write more about that and working on a second book. So, Carrie, Thank if you. folks want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? Pretty easy, at Carrie Gillum, uh, <laughs> C-A-R-E-Y-G-I-L-L-A-M. And I have a website, CarrieGillum.com. Uh, they can find out all about the book and read my articles, uh, links to the different outlets where my articles appear. Excellent. Yeah, so we want to make sure people are able to follow you to keep up with your research because it's important stuff. And when your new book comes out, I'll have you back on to discuss all the recent developments. Thanks for coming on, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you. 